You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Oh, no, here's that young man again with perineal pain and voiding symptoms. He's not responded to antibiotics and to sitz baths. How am I going to handle him today? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jeanette Potts, a staff member at the Glickman Urologic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Today we are going to be discussing this common and often perplexing problem of pain and inflammation in the prostate. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Potts. Thank you for having me. This is a very common problem in a general medical practice, and how should we be approaching the young man or or any man who has pain in the perineal area associated with some voiding or sexual symptoms? Well, I think that the first thing to keep in mind is that it is a very common complaint among young men. I think a lot of primary care physicians may think that pelvic pain is uh, an entity associated more so with females, but it is actually very common in men. And it does not necessarily have to be an infectious etiology. Indeed, in younger men, it is less likely to be an infectious etiology. But in older men, it can be caused by bacteria. In your work on this, uh, you stress the importance of thinking about this in in different categories. Uh, How should we be approaching this? What should our framework be? Well, in general, you may want to keep the NIH classification system in mind. Category 1 and 2 are pretty straightforward. These are the bacterial forms of prostatitis. Category 1 is acute. Category 2 is chronic. Category 1 is very um, obvious. It's a patient with fever, sometimes obstructive voiding symptoms. They may even present with urinary retention. And it's very easy to isolate or identify the organism, and they do respond to antibiotic therapy. Category 2 prostatitis may be the patient, older patient, who presents with repeated urinary tract infections. And the hallmark of that form of prostatitis is, you know, the identification of the same organism, usually with the same susceptibility profile. And, you know, one may want to extend the antibiotic therapy longer in a person like this. But the most common form of prostatitis is NIH Category 3 prostatitis, which refers to abacterial or non-bacterial prostatitis. But even more correctly, this form should be defined as chronic pelvic pain syndrome. It is by far and away, as I said before, the most common type of prostatitis, and yet the irony is that this may not even be a prostatic disorder. Hmm. So it's a bit of a misnomer, but fortunately someone was sitting in that panel in 1995 when they were you know, creating these definitions, and um, I applaud the group for being astute enough to include chronic pelvic pain syndrome under the umbrella of this classification. And when you say it's the most common, it accounts for uh, roughly what percentage of cases of pelvic pain and so-called prostatitis? Well, you know, I would say 90%, but I would like to say parenthetically, you know, working in a tertiary care center as a subspecialist in the area, I'm very confident that it could even be 95% of the patients I see who've been on antibiotics for a long time. So, I may have a very skewed uh, view of this. Mm-hmm. However, in general, in the urological literature, it is estimated that only 5 to 7% of patients with these symptoms will actually have positive urine cultures, and even more specifically, urine cultures that localize the organisms to the prostate gland. So as much as we may think that there's an infectious etiology in, in general practice uh, and treat these patients with antibiotics, when it comes down to it, the vast majority do not have a bacterial etiology. This is true. And, you know, what perpetuates this problem are three things. One is that the very nature of the non-bacterial form of the disease 
is a waxing and waning. And so the patient may have been coming through or coming out of this spontaneously, but because it coincided with a two- to four-week course of antibiotics, the antibiotics get the credit for it. Ah. The other reason is that some antibiotics also possess anti-inflammatory properties. And so perhaps the patient could have been better served with an inexpensive, safer, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug for a period of time. And thirdly, there's a strong placebo effect. So I think that we don't want to get caught up in what I call antibiotic codependency. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems a very easy way to get the patient out of the office in a more efficient manner, and it also feeds into that patient's need of walking out of the office with a paper in hand, especially for, you know, something as sexy as ciprofloxacin or other quinolones that are quite expensive. Mm-hmm. So I would just be cautious about it. I don't think there's anything wrong with one, a one-time or initial empiric treatment However, when one is tempted to write that second set of antibiotics, I think that's when we need to start thinking of a broader differential diagnosis and thinking a little bit beyond the prostate gland. And are there other thoughts as to what can cause these symptoms if it's not a true infection or inflammation of the prostate? Well, if we start first with some pretty serious pathology that can have an inflammatory presentation, I think of some of the patients I've seen with diverticulitis, acute and chronic diverticulitis, some of them quite young, you know, not our stereotypical patient that we would imagine. And these men would also have that very convincing and compelling history that would entice you to want to give them, you know, more antibiotics. I mean, they even have some, you know, fever. But I think it's important to make sure that, you know, we localize the pain, we kind of get a good feel for their gastrointestinal history. Um, Some of these men are so young, they've never had a screening colonoscopy. And, you know, and again, when they have these recurrent problems and they're treated over the phone, that's when we also miss the opportunity to find other signs and symptoms, other clues that this could be something like diverticulitis. There's other rare entities like chronic appendicitis, and that could present with lower urinary tract symptoms and a seemingly normal-appearing urine. But, you know, in, in those patients, to a good, thorough pelvic exam, an internal rectal exam with, you know, assessment of everything in that vicinity, including the prostate gland, can help. Always remembering that that's a sensitive area, and just because a man has discomfort when you enter the anus, that's not diagnostic of prostatitis. However, you might be also finding things like, you know, fissures and hemorrhoids and uh, perirectal abscesses, things like this. So then when we, we look beyond those other uh, factors, I then think of the pelvic floor musculature. We do take for granted the amount of stress that the torso and places and our legs place upon the pelvic floor. And aside from the trapezius muscles, which can cause severe headaches, the other part of the body most vulnerable to manifest myofascial pain syndromes is in the pelvic area, and the referred pain pattern can be towards the genital area and the perineum, which is very typical of the presentation of men with so-called prostatitis. Dr. Potts, there's a fourth category as well. Yes, that's uh, NIH category four prostatitis, which is an asymptomatic form of prostatitis diagnosed typically in an andrological setting or in the path lab. In the andrological setting, this would be the gentleman who presents with uh, suspected infertility, and in his evaluation, it would be incidentally noted that he has a high number of white blood cells or leukocytospermia. He'd have a high number of white blood cells in the semen. So that would either 
be a sign of, uh, of an occult infection or a non-infectious inflammatory process, and this would be considered a form of prostatitis, even though the patient is asymptomatic. And this could influence and impair fertility. The other form is diagnosed histologically, and this is what we find when prostate biopsies are performed for the detection of prostate cancer or when a urethral resection of the prostate gland for BPH is performed and the pathologist uh, evaluates that tissue, or prostatectomy uh, for BPH or prostate cancer, and the histological diagnosis of acute or chronic inflammation is made. I'm thinking of the 50-plus-year-old man who has the slightly elevated or, or moderately elevated PSA. There's no way other than uh, tissue to make this type of diagnosis, is there? Well, th- this is a little bit controversial, and of course, PSA in general has always been controversial, and as is PSA and prostate cancer screening. A few years ago, I had done a study where I did prostate massages in patients seeking consultation for PSA elevation alone. Um, the reason I did this was that so many of my patients who underwent a transrectal ultrasound biopsy had negative biopsies, but the pathologist noted the inflammation. And so I wondered about detecting this in advance. So Mm -hmm. I did the prostate massages in an attempt to be a little more selective and make my PSA levels more specific. And um, I did find that there was a correlation between the inflammatory cells or the positive expressed prosthetic secretions and the biopsies, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend that everyone get antibiotics uh, empirically, which is what I was doing in the patients who demonstrated these abnormal uh, levels of inflammation in the semen. But many of them did respond by normalizing the PSA. Again, I would like to emphasize parenthetically that I'm reminded of medical school where we were told to treat patients and not numbers. Mm -hmm. So I, I do remind myself that many times that I, I don't want to get caught up in knee-jerkedly either biopsying or putting patients through unnecessary antibiotic regimens for a number when there are many reasons the PSA can be elevated other than cancer. And, and, I, you know, and it just feeds into that um, obsession with the actual um, number, number and the level. Uh-huh. On the other hand, we do have to bear in mind that inflammation while it can be the cause of an artificially elevated PSA level, it also is implicated, as we all know, in the initiation of certain disease processes, including cancer. So we still don't know for sure. There's still no evidence that men with prostatitis or with a history of chronic bacterial or abacterial prostatitis have a predisposition for prostate cancer, but there is evidence that inflammatory changes are often seen or observed histologically in very close proximity or juxtaposition with the malignancy. So those two things may cancel each other out. Uh, To your knowledge, is anyone doing uh, a formal study with the technique that that you described to to perhaps uh, empirically treat with antibiotics, repeat the PSA after a period of time and save someone a biopsy? Yes, I've done that. And that's that's what you were describing? Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't mean to make a, you know, a plug or anything, but if anyone wanted to see that, that's in the Journal of Urology in 2000. Mm-hmm. And it's about the prospective identification of Category 4 prostatitis in the hopes of improving the specificity of the PSA test. And, it, and again, that was well-received in some groups and very highly criticized in others. But I think I have a little more latitude in doing that type of work in practice because of the setting in which I am working. But I think that a primary care physician with an excellent rapport with you know, his or her patients could easily 
do things like this, if there's a history or there's evidence that there's a risk that this person could have had, you know, chronic prostatitis in the past, and just do an empiric course of antibiotics and repeat the PSA. I don't think there's any harm in waiting four to six weeks to determine if a patient does have like a peak in, in the PSA before they get the consult. But that's definitely the comfort level of the family practitioner. And certainly everyone's worried about the medical legal aspects and delaying a prostate cancer diagnosis. But the fact is most of the cancers are very slow growing. And I believe that if you have a compliant patient and you have adequate follow-up, you know, in a timely, efficient fashion, I don't think you could harm them if the person has this type of history and may have the potential to respond to a brief course of antibiotics three to four weeks. I want to thank Dr. Jeanette Potts, who has been our guest, as we've been discussing the uh, definition and classification of prostatitis. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.